Welcome back to Two Nobodies, everyone. Rupesh is here again. You know, there are a lot of things happening right now in South America, particularly Brazil. The last four years have been not the greatest time for the Amazon rainforest, you know, with um, Bolsonaro as president in that administration and a great amount of deforestation happening in the region. Well, we have there's a new president there, Lula, and there seems to be a commitment and a pledge to restoring and de- or at least de- uh, reducing the amount of deforestation and hopefully restoring some of the Amazon rainforest. Um, you know, it's a fascinating time right now, especially politically. You see the uprising that's happening, some of that sort of, uh, you know, the rioting that's happening at the Capitol there, similar to what happened, you know, January 6th in, in the United States. But uh, what I want to focus on today is the Amazon rainforest and what's actually happening there and what level of destruction is going on. What does that mean for climate? What does that mean for environmental systems? And I have a fantastic guest here, Chris Bolton, a research fellow from the University of Exeter who works at the Global Systems Institute. Chris, thanks so much for joining us here on Two Nobodies. Appreciate having you. Oh, yeah, no, thank you for reaching out. Yeah, it's great to be able to talk to people like this, so. Yeah, Thank that's you. uh yeah, for sure. Um you're at the University of Exeter. I've never been yes. to I've been to the UK a few times, oh. but I've never been that part of the UK. So tell me what life is like in Exeter. <laughs> so um I'm actually a really local guy, so I was okay. born like twenty miles away from Exeter. So I've basically grown up um in the area like thirty three years. Um Wow. Yeah. It's so it's down in like the southwest of England, like on yeah. that kind of boot that you have. So we're a bit yeah. bit out of the way, but you know, we're getting you know, I mean, since I've been here, um, you know, we've got the universities put a lot of investment in and, you know, we've had the Met Office move down to Exeter as well. So mm. I think we're kind of <laughs> slowly linking ourselves like properly to the to the rest of the country at least. So, you know, I've I've seen a lot of growth in like industry and stuff and certainly research from my point of view coming out of Exeter. So and yeah, it's, it's right good. off the water too, right? It's, it looks yeah, very beautiful. And I was looking at images of it yesterday. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's beaches to the north and the south. So mm. um yeah, and also we've got Dartmoor as well, like a really mm. big national park. And I think, um, I mean, from an international point of view, I guess like Sherlock Holmes has had some stories and stuff on Dartmoor, so you might know it from that. But yeah, that's a really yeah. beautiful place as well. So yeah, it's got a bit of everything. Is there a lot of growth happening in Exeter or is it pretty, are people <laughs> very protective of that sort of thing? Because I imagine it's a, with a beautiful place like that, people are always concerned about growth right yeah so i guess i guess the main thing would be you know like student accommodation and things as the the university's growing out at least that's the main thing mm. i've i've seen recently but yeah there's like you know shopping developments and stuff but they are keeping those green areas you know nice and pristine as well so you haven't got to go too far to get to nature and stuff so it's really nice but yeah. Well, I hope I one day I can make my way down there. It yeah, looks uh, it looks should. wonderful. Yeah. Um, your story, as far as uh, you know, I think you're a, a math mathematician, or I think I, you went to math, right? Is that sort uh, of your base yeah, foundation, ori- I guess? Or? Originally, yeah. So when I was um, when I was a young and I was uh, really good at maths, and I was one of the only people who actually liked it. And you know, if you if you like something like maths, it's really good to lean heavily into that because. <laughs> 
you get quite a head start on other people who hate it. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, my undergrad was in mathematics, and okay. you know, you suddenly get to a point where you realise you you need to do something with that maths, and it's not just all like numbers and adding things together. You know, there needs to be a reason why you're doing it. Um, yeah. And so by the time I got to my PhD kind of age, that was a, you know, there was this opportunity where. You know, moving into the geography department with a background in maths gives mm. kind of nice, um, you know, a nice reason to move across and apply your maths to something that's, you know, useful for people to actually see like results from and, you know, rather than just, you know, doing accountancy or something like that, sure. you know. So, sure. yeah, that's how I got into kind of climate science, I guess. So climate science in particular, was that sort of the first entry into like the geography, geography, environmental stream, or were you focused yeah. on something else before that? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely so like I've got a kind of a kind of lean towards statistics as well. And mm. um, yeah, I mean, with the Met Office there, like the university was just starting to bring out these kind of mathematics with something degrees and one of them was mm. climate science that made the link to the you know um met office because you know they were trying to establish their connections and i didn't actually take that course but that was then in the back of my mind for then jumping on to doing phd so um yeah it was just straight from pure maths into climate science basically and yeah here i am <laughs> yeah and so the connection or i guess this the application of mathematics into climate I don't know if that's so obvious for people. So what's, what, what is, um, how do those two kind of relate or how do you apply the field of mathematics and climate? Sure. So I guess the main thing is that people or climate scientists, they're interested in what's going to happen in the future. So they, they have to model mm. um, the, basically the earth <laughs> mm -hmm. and see what's going to happen when you do different things to it. And the only way you can approximate what's going to happen based on the processes you apply to that fake earth basically is you know putting loads of equations down and seeing mm. how the numbers come out of those equations so it's the same way as like you have a weather forecast where um, right. you know you run these big supercomputers and they you know they track what the particles in the air are doing mm. um climate models work in exactly the same way except rather than just looking at what's happening every minute or second or whatever they're looking at you know, daily or monthly things that are happening and they aggregate that over a longer time period. So it's basically this idea that <laughs> everything that's modelled comes from equations and if you can understand how equations work, then you're quite a big step into, you know, getting into this kind of climate modelling kind of area. Um, the stuff I do isn't necessarily linked to those kind of models, but, you know, um, I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but I kind of... I mentioned statistics before and mm -hmm. what I do is take the output from those models and look for statistical changes in the properties of the things that are coming out and mm. that kind of tells us something about you know how those things are changing that you don't necessarily just see from the output of the models on their own so yeah that's where I come in but I'm pretty sure we'll talk about that later so well I know absolutely I do want to I do want to talk about that so then uh getting into the focus on climate in particular, when does that start? Does that happen right away for you? And, and I guess what was the sort of compelling reason for wanting to focus on, on that particular area? Yeah. So that was, um, yeah, that came out of, um, when I was finishing my, 
um, math, well, my mathematics degree. I was looking for certain um, PhDs that were being offered at the university, and mm. um, well, my colleague, I guess, or supervisor at the time, Tim Lenton, had this opportunity of looking for um, early warning signals of tipping points. So mm. there's this concept in climate and other areas as well that um, you can see large sudden changes in systems just by pushing them and pushing them and pushing them, but you know, not necessarily seeing anything beforehand. And then you might push something off a cliff, basically, and you get this mm. large change in the system when you didn't expect it before. So he'd been dabbling with this idea, all this mathematical theory that you can pick up these changes in the system by looking for certain indicators of mm. that happening beforehand. Um, so that's where I came into it from there. Um, he was in, you know, we were interested in looking at certain climate systems, these large scale systems that govern what's happening in the climate system as a whole. Um, and I did a summer placement at the Met Office and they happened to be interested in what was happening in the Amazon and their models. Um, so, you know, that led me to think, oh, well, let's start looking at the Amazon. Uh, this right. was, <laughs> this was like, Oh, maybe like 15 years ago now. So um, I've been kind of around the houses and I've worked on lots of different other projects, but I guess the Amazon, because of that, it's kind of something that I keep coming back to. But, you know, that's yeah. not to say I don't look at other systems as well. But yeah, that's kind of a lead in for my introduction to climate, I guess. So with the climate tipping point is applying um, mathematics, was that something that's not... Uh, wasn't really there as far as like in terms of determining those indicators for when those climate systems start to tip over uh -huh. is that is that a relatively novel area yeah so it, it comes from like a pure maths kind of theory where um like you have these equations again uh, mm -hmm. they might not necessarily describe anything but you can kind of change slowly change a parameter in them so you might you know, you've got a dial and you might slowly dial this a certain direction and you suddenly see a big change in what mm. the output of that equation is showing. And that's, um, you know, in the when you have these equations, you know, they have, you know, like equilibriums in them where, you know, if you push a system slightly away from that, it will return to that equilibrium. Mm. Um, and like this parameter would change the stability of that. So it'd make it weaker and weaker and and make it harder for that system to get back to that equilibrium and eventually that equilibrium would disappear so the whole concept of uh, they call these like bifurcations in mathematics so these bifurcations have you know been known for well <laughs> probably centuries but you know mm. i think in the 80s someone came up with this idea of being able to see changes in like the time series or you know the output mm -hmm. from the equation to seeing that you're approaching this without you know actually knowing that you're dialing that parameter as such um and so yeah i guess around like around, yeah like start of the century i guess like um actually one of the colleagues now at exeter noticed that in one of the um uh, met office climate models that they could force the amazon Will force the climate system and the amazon has this collapse in it in them in their model at least mm. and so that made you know that brought in you know like a lot of attention of this idea that you could have these non-linear changes in the climate system as well mm. and so people start to think well where else could they be 
and you know by the time I they worked those out and I got to my PhD it was the point it was starting to get to the point where you know well we could apply these indicators to those systems and see if they work and certainly in some cases they do work you know and you can see yeah. um, you know you can see an early warning that you're approaching these things um, I guess the problem with that is that it's quite easy to do in models because you can force the system to collapse and then see if you saw the early warnings but in the real mm -hmm. world <laughs> kind of don't want to force a system to see if it's going to collapse sure. and go yeah, yeah i knew that sure. was going to happen but you know <laughs> so you know we're kind of you know we're out on a ledge and we don't know where the actual you know the end of that ledge is at the moment so you know yeah. we have to use these indicators on real world systems without knowing what the outcome is hopefully <laughs> yeah so yeah. yeah that's that's a quite an interesting concept so I want to I want to dive a little bit into um, maybe some of those climate tipping points that uh, you folks are noticing at least that are are, are very concerning or you're seeing those war maybe warning indicators kind of pop up. I don't know mm -hmm. if you can comment on that, but uh, before I mention that, just it's really interesting just um, the the application of mathematics in so many different fields. I was talking to somebody about the James Webb Space Telescope. Right, and yeah. he was saying how I was like, where is this thing? And he's like, well, it's in this space where there's kind of essentially equal pull between the gravity of, of the earth and the sun. And I was like, yeah. well, how do they figure that? I was like, it was a mathematician, the Lagrange principle. Uh -huh. And uh, I was like, this is incredible. So yeah. um, just the, the possibilities of what you can do uh, with that field are incredible. Yeah, well, so. one, thing, one thing I found with it is once you move away from it, there's a definite, you know, like... You just have your headlights on and it's like, this is the only bit of maths I need to remember now because that's all <laughs> I use in my work. And if someone mentions yeah. something totally different, it's like, I, I don't know what you're talking about, you know, and then <laughs> you have to go back. Right. So, yeah, you yeah. really specialize once you move away, I think. And that's, yeah, that's an interesting thing as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, these, uh, what are you noticing as far as these climate systems and some of these tipping points from, from what your folks are researching? Like, which... Which systems are very concerning right now, as far as, um, and I don't even know. Are have there been? Are there any systems that have kind of tipped over? Um, yeah, yeah. So that yeah, that's an interesting question about whether they've already tipped. So, I mean, my um, someone that works at the university, they have recently had a paper out where you know they've done a big review of all the science of climate tipping points and i mm. think that came out a couple of months ago towards the end of the year and they um you know they've obviously the easiest way to categorize you know which are the most alarming is you know how much warming would the planet need to be to probably tip them so you can kind of rank them in that sort of way um yeah and so you know like some of the ones that perhaps are a bit worrying you know, maybe with like one and a half degrees warming above pre-industrial, you see like kind of like, um, you know, like ice sheet melting and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, and those sort of things are going to change circulation patterns and have knock-on effects for other parts of the world. Um, mm. So, you know, you see things like that that are, you know, potentially right around the corner. But, you know, a lot of this is based on models and, you know, you can, there's lots of factors when you model these things it's what are we going to do over the next century and how is the earth going to react to that so you have this model uncertainty of how the different models react to that thing that you're doing and we also have uncertainty about ourselves about what we're actually going to do as well so right. i think a lot of this gets 
you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in these different directions. So, you know, it's really hard to pin down, like, what is likely, you know, tomorrow or something. Um, obviously, it's not going to happen literally tomorrow. But, yeah. um, you know, so I think from, um, you know, my point of view, I focused on the Amazon. I've also looked at um, the Atlantic Meridional overturning circulation. So that's what like is an that? So that's an ocean circulation pattern that basically keeps <laughs> us here in the UK warm, I guess, compared okay. to the other latitudes. <laughs> you know, okay. the same things on the same latitude. So it's okay. this idea that you get, um, you know, uh, kind of a current that goes up to the North Atlantic and then mm. you get this deep water formation that's like a conveyor belt. Um, mm. I don't know if you know the day after tomorrow film where everything turns right. to ice. So that yeah. is supposedly if the AMOC was going to collapse as a tipping point. Oh, um, okay. okay. So that, for example, is likely to be quite a long way away. But again, this is mm. all based on models and things. Um, but you said about things that have already tipped. And mm -hmm. uh, we had a conference um, a few months ago at the university about tipping points. And there was quite a social aspect to that, which is quite good because the idea of society and tipping points is coming in. And, you know, we yeah. learned, about, learned from colleagues in Brazil that perhaps there's already been a social tipping point in the Amazon. The idea that people are struggling with floods and droughts and, mm. you know, they're already being severely affected. And, you know, when... You know, when I do my work, I'm just interested in the vegetation that's there and whether the trees are dying back. But, you know, right. there's like weather patterns and things that are happening that actually affect people's livelihoods. And, you know, they, you know, they lose all their crops or, you know, they lose their house and things. And, you know, perhaps to those people personally, that is a tipping point because, mm. you know, so from a societal point of view, perhaps things like that have already reached tipping points. Um, but from a... You know, from us saying, oh, climate science tipping points, you know, perhaps we're not there yet. But, you know, from people who are deeply dependent on those areas, perhaps they already have reached a tipping point. So, yeah, that's an interesting I never, I never thought about social tipping points um, because, I, I mean, I think when you think about a climate tipping point, it's like it's so uh, it's just the the scope and scale of that is just unimaginable. The level of control that we have also on whether to reverse a tipping point or not or re mm -hmm. restore it back to its original state like whether that's even possible is maybe unknown or you know whether you know what can be actually be done but a social tipping point at least my mind naturally thinks well sure but maybe there's an ability to um restore that or you know it's just not as obvious i, I suppose yeah. for me but yeah 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 i guess um i mean <laughs> Like naively, you can obviously compensate people for having reached those social tipping points if you know mm. they need, um, you know, if they need things in their life restored. But you know, to uh, should we be actually focusing on the problem that's causing that as well? So you know, mm. I think they're I think they're quite entangled, and it's hard to pick apart those things. But yeah, from my point of view, I think that is important as well as just looking at the climate as well. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you also look at the interaction um, uh, between different systems and how they could affect whether one tips or not? I yeah, guess. I mean, personally, I don't, but I definitely yeah. know that researchers do. Um, mm. So there is like, you know, this kind of, I, I guess they call them cascading tipping points. Um, mm. But, you know, it might be the idea of, I talked about the ice sheets before, you know, being yeah. tipping points. Um, 
they're going to change ocean circulation patterns. They might warm, um, you know, certain latitudes that, you know, have like boreal forests there, for example. So, mm-hmm. you know, you've got those northern latitude forests and, you know, they're getting a lot warmer compared to what they're used to. So you might get a tipping point in those and that might change circulation patterns as well. Um, I mean, I can't, I said about the AMOC, that would be, you know, that's probably a longer term thing. But if the AMOC were to collapse, that would change the rainfall that happened over the Amazon, for example. Mm. So, you know, yeah, so the Amazon might get um, less rainfall, but perhaps maybe like more sustained rainfall over the year. So, you Mm. know, they would have to think... (laughs) I don't know if plants think necessarily, but, you know, it would have to adapt to those changes in rainfall mm-hmm. and whether that would cause a tipping point or not. That's something that we're interested in as well. So, you know, there are all these knock on effects and they're generally related to the circulation patterns that change. And, you know, that in turn changes, I guess, naively the temperature and the precipitation at that specific mm-hmm. area. And then, you know, then you see if that climate system can live with that or if not then that's going to tip so yeah there's a lot of ideas of these cascading tipping points that are coming out recently as well i i i think there's a bit of a gap in communicating like those cascading tipping points right like somebody um you know someone living in north america hears about i don't know a climate system that's being affected so far away they might not understand how really that affects them at home but like if you kind of walk people through the way you just did on some of those those cast those interacting climate systems and how one can tip off the other Mm -hmm. um it starts to get closer and closer to home yeah and i mean just related to that anyway you know like the amazon is a massive store of carbon Mm -hmm. that is carbon that isn't in the atmosphere and you know if you were Mm -hmm. to have the dieback of this forest then you're going to be releasing that carbon back into the atmosphere so yeah even without like another tipping point climate system just the climate system as a whole like that would have a global effect on itself without thinking about Mm -hmm. specific systems afterwards Mm -hmm. yeah it's just like the what we're dealing with here in canada i don't think people understand the amount of storage that the permafrost has yeah yeah well that's another one yeah and uh and that is slowly you know um melting away and and large amounts of carbon are being released so mm-hmm. normal people yeah it's interesting um the amazon rainforest have you been there before i have not no so i'm one of those people that okay. talks about it a lot without knowing what i'm talking about so yeah i i my uh, my partner has actually but yeah i haven't okay. so that's always a joke between us that is that is that a place you want to go one day or yeah i think it'd be nice um i mean i feel like perhaps i'd understand it even better if i went there but Mm. you know i like to think that um i don't know maybe i can go there as a you know when it's when it's perfect and it's all back and we've saved it you know i can go there as a little celebrationary trip but yeah it yeah. does sound nice to go i think yeah yeah uh what is happening in the amazon based on what you the research that you've done what have you what have you noticed sure so um would you like me to get technical here or well, let's let's you can get technical. I might bring you back a little bit. So let's sure. let's try. So I guess like obviously I haven't been there. So, you know, that we're at, I talked about models earlier, but we're actually using um, real world data that's taken from satellites. So mm. you can, you know, the satellites that go over the 
worlds and they get um, remotely sensed data. So <coughs> they basically send microwaves down and something gets beamed back up to them and they, okay. you know, with some processing of data, you can tell things about the lands that it's just picked up information mm. about. So um, we used a product that's called um, Vegetation Optical Depth, <laughs> or VOD okay. for short. So okay. um, what that does is, very simply, it kind of picks up how much biomass of vegetation is in a specific grid point. So, mm. of, you know, it splits the world up into grid points. And so the satellite shines or flies over and it, you know, it shines these microwaves down and gets some information back about that specific location. And in this case, you know, the, the product we used was this VOD that tells you, you know, if that number's higher, then we know that there's a lot of biomass or tree or forest at that specific location um so kind of like the density of the area as, as far as the vegetation yeah, yeah exactly yeah, so, it's quite yeah. strongly linked to the water content of the tree so you know how much water oh, okay. they're storing so okay can kind of maybe be a measure of how healthy they are as well in a way because mm. you know if a tree's got enough water then it's happy mm. you know perhaps you might see it dip after a drought for example so you know because there's not enough water for the tree so that same tree would be there, but it would have a lower VOD because it's got less water in it. Um, okay. And so, you know, these these satellites go over and they scan, you know, a strip because they're flying over at a specific time. And, you know, the next day they might pick up the strip next to it. Mm. Um, and so we can kind of aggregate this data up to like a monthly data set. So, you know, at this location at this time, we had this much VOD and so mm -hmm. at each location you can get a kind of a time series of what the trees are doing um, mm -hmm. and so what we can do is um, you know we can do some pre-processing of the data and we can say we're only interested in the Amazon basin for example so you know we draw a ring around the Amazon and yep. we're only interested in areas that have this much like broadleaf tree in them or you know like the actual tree so we've got another data set that tells us how many broad or what fraction of that area is broadleaf trees so mm. you know we're really drilling into the rainforest of the amazon with the places we're looking at and so we've got a time series at each of these locations and you know that's over like six thousand locations and so then what we do is we um, measure these indicators on mm -hmm. each of those time series so, like I said, someone in the 80s came up with this concept of um, critical slowing down. So okay. what happens is if a, um, if a system is going through one of these kind of bifurcation things I was talking about earlier where it's losing stability, mm. it will take longer to recover from perturbations. So perturbation for the Amazon, for example, might be a drought that happens. So okay. you can yeah. imagine like this VOD, the drought, happens and this VOD goes down and then mm -hmm. it will slowly recover once the tree's happy it will go back to the VOD value that it was before that drought mm -hmm. um, and so if you're approaching this bifurcation you can you're losing stability of that you know that stable state or that equilibrium so the idea is that if you um, force or perturb or cause a drought on that system um, when it's weaker or when it's closer to bifurcating or closer to the tipping point, 
then mm. it's going to take much longer to recover from that perturbation because mm. the restoring feedbacks of that system are much slower or much weaker. So, um, so you can imagine, uh, you can imagine that you know, for the Amazon, you have these droughts that happen. But you know, sometimes it rains more. Some days are drier. Some days are wetter. Some days are warmer. Some days are colder. And mm -hmm. so, rather than having this idea that you're perturbing it to here and then it's coming back. The balls that you know, the system's actually moving around like this, right? And so, rather than just being able to pick up that the system is a um, taking longer to recover from perturbations as it's approaching a tipping point, we instead look at something called the lag one autocorrelation, which okay, is you're gonna have to explain that one. <laughs> I certainly will. So, um, so I mean, mathematically, you have a correlation where you measure two variables against each other and see how correlated yep. they are. Right. Uh, so this autocorrelation is basically where you take our time series and you put that on one axis and on mm -hmm. the other axis you put um, what it was at the previous time step so you're lagging it by one. Okay. And the idea being that if you've got a higher correlation between these then your system's slowing down because it's much similar than it was at the previous time point. If you've got a system that is very stable and you did this, you'd see a much lower correlation because there's not much interaction between what was happening and the previous time step because when I said that you're coming back to that equilibrium or back to that stable state, you're kind of getting slower to get to it. So you can imagine that the previous time point is much more similar to the one that you're at today. And so you can kind of get that concept of slowing down. Whereas if it instantly got back to where it was, like you know, faster, then you're not going to see as much link between what happened the day before. Sure, okay. Um, so what we do is we measure this, um, well, we call it AR1 for short, the lag one autocorrelation, but we measure that on a sliding window that we move along our time series. And you should see that if you're approaching a tipping point, then that indicator should go up over time because it's becoming more correlated mm. um, because it's slowing down, essentially. Um, and we also look at a change in variance on the sliding window as well. And that's simply because um, we use this ball in a well analogy generally. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if you've got a system that is very um, stable, you might have a well like this with a ball that kind of rolls around. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As you start to dial that parameter I was talking about earlier up, it starts to shallow out. And so the mm -hmm. ball takes longer to roll back to the middle. Mm. Mm -hmm. And also, it can sample more of the area. So um, it's kind of, um, you know, that variance should go up because you've got more space to sample. And also, right. the AR1 should go up because, you know, you're slowing down, basically, as you're coming back to the middle. Um, and so we did this on each of the time series that we see, um, those over 6,000 in the Amazon. And in over three quarters of them, we did see a significant, in well, no, we saw an increase in um, this lag one autocorrelation, basically, and particularly from, uh, like, the early 2000s. So from the start of the century, we start to see a really strong increase in the fact that this AR1's going up, which, you know, as I said earlier, we don't, <laughs> we don't know where that ledge is and that we're going to fall mm. off because it's not a model, it's the real world. But, mm. you know, that would indicate that we're... Um, approaching this tipping point um, we we generally call that like a loss of resilience in the system 
So resilience being the ability for that system to get back to that equilibrium or that ball to Mm. get back to the middle of that well. So, you know, we'd call that like a loss of resilience generally. So, you know, we don't, you know, we might not necessarily know what an Amazon tipping point might look like, but at the moment that resilience is being lost in the system as far as our results show. So, yeah. So actually without being to the Amazon, that's what I'm able to show. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so um, so what are the what are the consequences if we do see a reduced resilience in the Amazon? Um, so I guess from a resilience point of view, I was talking about those droughts earlier. So um, mm. we've seen what people do call like one in one hundred year drought events, but you know they happened in two thousand and five and two thousand and ten and two thousand and fifteen ish, mm. but. Um, the idea is that because we've seen a loss in resilience over that time, you know, if we had a drought in 2005 and the forest recovered from that, if we had that same drought now because it's got a lower resilience, it would take longer to recover from that drought. Mm. And so, you know, you can, you know, you can imagine because of that, that you've got a forest that's more degraded than it was, you know, a couple of decades ago. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of what we're talking about here, the idea of that. Um, forest to restore itself back to when it's healthy after an event that's happened so you know that's kind of what we'd be talking about by saying a loss of resilience so practically what is what do you think is actually happening on the ground um with the vegetation that's that's contributing to this loss of resilience sure so i guess we've got um you know like global climate change happening (laughs) Mm -hmm. so you know, we have um, increasing temperatures and, you know, changes in rainfall that could happen because, again, these circulation patterns. There's this idea that if you warm up the, <coughs> if you warm up the northern hemisphere, then that moves something called the um, ITCZ on the world, which is like basically kind of like the trade winds that go across, you know, the equator. Mm. And if you warm the North Atlantic up, then there's, you know, this might, these might go more north. Um, and that would change the rain that happens over the Amazon, for example. So you have these mm. global um, weather change patterns that are happening, which aren't helping the Amazon. Um, and then, you know, you alluded to things in the introduction, this idea that you're seeing deforestation as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's generally happening you know, on the east and the south where people live, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, so the Amazon has a kind of water recycling network because it's a rainforest. So I think um, people call it the atmospheric river to be poetic, but it's Mm -hmm. this idea that you, you know, the wind blows rainfall in from, you know, the Atlantic and it rains down on the Amazon and then it gets evaporated and the wind blows it further inland and there can be this idea that the rainfall can recycle itself like up to seven times as it goes more and more inland Mm. and so if you're having deforestation on the edge you're kind of breaking down that um possibility of that happening so Mm. you know you get the rainfall on the leaves that are then evaporating back up into the atmosphere but you know if it falls onto like bare ground or soil for example it's much harder to um, get back into the atmosphere so you kind of got these global patterns happening, but you're also breaking down the kind of, you know, like the microclimate there. That's yeah, there. exactly. Yeah. So um, I've been saying that the Amazon's quite interesting because a lot of these climate systems that we look at are 
you know, generally affected by global climate, but, you know, the Amazon's being attacked on two fronts, basically. So, you know, there's both of these things going on and interacting with each other, which, from a maths point of view, I find quite interesting, but it's also yeah. quite sad. But... Um, because of the size of the Amazon rainforest, like you kind of spoke to this about, um, you know, the... the um, the, the the rain cycles that just happen within the Amazon naturally and how that can be uh, disrupted. Um, obviously, the way you, the, you know, it's very clear from what you're talking about that other climate systems have an impact on the Amazon rainforest. But in terms of just what's happening locally, like if there is, do you know if if there was some level of restoration, could there, could it kind of build up that resiliency or is that resiliency largely more dependent on other systems outside of what's happening in the Amazon. Does that um, make sense? Yeah. So, you know, historically, you know, the Amazon's been there for thousands of years, um, maybe tens of thousands. And people who, you know, know more about paleoclimate than me will probably tell me I'm wrong on that. But, you know, it's definitely, as far as I'm concerned, you know, it's been there for a long, 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 long time, like before we were here. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, up until very recently it has been a carbon store so it's been storing a carbon from the atmosphere and mm -hmm. you know there's research that came out a couple of years ago and it suggests that you know the burning of trees from the deforestation and getting rid of those trees for the you know for the last few years has perhaps maybe been more of a carbon source than the storage that the amazon's been taking in so you know you that balance is kind of changing ever so off, slightly yeah. Yeah. yeah so but you know that is only just happening and so you know i think that if you kind of stop that deforestation then you know you're definitely going to gain that resilience and you know that would start the amazon to be a carbon store again and so you know that's then going to help for the more global picture as well you know so mm -hmm. you have this knock-on effect that you know by helping the amazon itself then you can in turn help the other thing. And, you know, that's going to be mm -hmm. a kind of nice feedback rather than, you know, the bad feedbacks that cause the tipping point. So, um, you know, I think, I mean, <laughs> obviously we're at a time where, um, you know, with the political climate, there is a chance to do something now. And I think that would be a good time to do it. But mm. yeah, you know, I, I feel confident that resilience could be gained back if the right actions are taken soon <laughs> i don't know if this is a is a, if this is sort of a cheap and lazy way of thinking about like a solution or, or how we approach this but um could it make sense at all given again how you just described right now how important the amazon rainforest is to overall global climate systems you know it's always um described as the the lungs of the earth sort of thing right <laughs> mm -hmm. um should should we as a global society really if we can like focus so much of our efforts on trying to restore the amazon and could that do we know if that would have a large impact on the way the other systems kind of feedback from that like yeah. is, do you know what i mean like <coughs> like it's like we can't like i don't know what we could do about the ice sheets directly right? Like yeah. as far as restoring them, right? Mm -hmm. um, maybe there are other systems that we can maybe have some control or influence on. I'm not sure, but the Amazon seems like one where we can 
potentially have a lot more human control over yeah yeah and that's exactly what i meant when i said you know it's being attacked on two fronts and, yeah yeah so yeah i definitely i mean i haven't i haven't ventured into the politics of things too much but mm-hmm. you know i guess you'd have problems about you know perhaps people need that deforestation as part of their livelihood you know yeah, def- yeah. you know really they shouldn't but you know how do you tell somebody that who you know needs that kind of thing to happen mm-hmm. um i mean you know the politics have been on the side of doing that recently so mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. i i pass I, I mean i'm all the way over here in the uk so you know i don't feel i can comment on the specifics of politics from other countries but you know i can imagine some global effort would you know go s- some way to helping that at least but you know the intricacies of how that works you know are probably <laughs> i'd say above my pay grade as such but right. you know yeah i can you know in a perfect world if that could happen then that would be a really nice way to help combat climate change i think and mm-hmm. you know in my <laughs> in my starry i'd feel you know like saving all the biodiversity as well that is in the amazon because it's not just about climate it's about you know saving lots of species that live there as well and you know you hear about all these animals that go extinct and things and you know it'd be nice mm-hmm. to also have that and as well as a, a saving for the climate as well so for sure i don't know if you heard recently there was the montreal biodiversity conference um right. that that happened and apparently there's 30 billion dollars that came out of that to commit to biodiversity and oh, cool. my understanding is a, a good chunk of the money is going towards um the Amazon. So, nice, and then yeah. I think I read also that Norway and Germany, they had specific funds to support the Amazon rainforest, but they had shut it down while Bolsonaro was president. And, uh, and now they're looking to restore that fund. Oh, so hopefully cool. there is some good efforts and some money, good money flowing oh, towards this. There we go. Yeah. 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 Um, when you think about, um, just like how to improve, the situation and to quote unquote, I guess, like save the Amazon. I know that may not have been the focus of your research, but um, I don't know if you had personal thoughts that kind of gone through your mind or if if um, uh, the work you're doing at the Climate Systems Institute is, is kind of looking at that, but but what sort of, what needs to happen, I guess? Yeah, <laughs> I guess, um, yeah, I guess the main thing is to try and stop this deforestation or at least have it controlled in some way to, you know, um, you know, perhaps make it in certain areas if it needs to happen, but, you know, mm-hmm. because that would be areas that are least affected. I mean, you have, like, it's not just the deforestation as well, but it's, like, the roads that cut through the Amazon and things that also mm-hmm. affect this recycling network. So, you know, you get the idea that, you know, they might build a road through and then go partway into the Amazon to cut some trees back a lot deeper in than you actually expect that they're doing just on the outside. So, mm. you know, trying to have a handle on those sort of things. I mean, obviously no deforestation at all would be great. And, you know, maybe like reforestation and trying to grow those trees back in those areas would be, you know, a really good step. But again, from like the politics point of view, I've, I've got no concept of like the funding for that to happen. But, right. you know, from a science point of view, that's the sort of thing that we should be looking at doing. So. Yeah, I was reading that um, Lula is actually, well, at least the commitment is that no deforestation by 2030. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that, uh, yeah. if there'll be sort of a ramping down of that over time. 
but um, it looks like the politics are in favor of, yeah. of uh, you know, hopefully restoring some of this. But I just don't know that, like, in your in the modeling you folks are doing, like, is there a certain timeline that you think there is for the Amazon? Again, it, it, like, it, it didn't sound, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, we don't know if we're at a tipping point. Is that right? Um, so, so yeah, I guess I would phrase this as, like, an early warning signal that we're approaching it. So, you know, mm-hmm. I would feel that there's still time to do something. And, you know, when I've done interviews and stuff, it's kind of been for, like this message of hope in a way that you know this is some evidence that it's going to happen um Mm -hmm. and then you know there's kind of you know as i said before with the climate modeling we don't know what the future is going to look like but you know perhaps on the trajectory we're on without any intervention you know you might start to think that something might happen towards the end of the century in the amazon but that's Mm -hmm. my personal viewpoint so other people might think it's got more time and others less um and then the thing about the Amazon as well is that it trees take a really long time to um, show changes that have happened. So, um, mm. <coughs> you know, when we when we've modelled this and we forced it to a tipping point, you know, you might see there might be decades before you actually see a loss of trees, but the trees are already in a place where it's unsustainable for them to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm extremely confident that that isn't the stage we're in at the moment. But, you know, mm. just as a timeline point of view, you know, the general consensus of the tipping point that would happen in the Amazon, you might suggest that once you've crossed that, you know, that would take a few decades to be realised. And, you know, without these kind of warning things, you might think, oh, it's fine, the Amazon's there, but it's not very healthy. And, you know, you don't realise that without delving more into the kind of indicators like we do. So... You know, mm. in the future, just because the forest would be there, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's staying there. If you, you know, if you fix climate at the end of the century, you might see in 10 years time the Amazon goes anyway. And you go, but it's there 10 years ago. And, you know, but it was already too late because, you know, you'd already crossed that tipping point and not realized it. So, mm. it, I mean, when you, when you, again, you just said like potentially maybe the end of the end of the century i mean for us sort of small-minded humans like that doesn't that seems like a far away time right like it doesn't um but uh especially when they're saying like you know some of these we could be approaching you know um this you know one point like we're going to be higher than 1.5 degrees Mm -hmm. by by that time so it seems like okay well if it's not until then like we have a lot of time but what you're also saying is that we we're setting the groundwork for a lot of unsustainability here for that vegetation. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, So, um, like, um, you have, um, yeah, like I say, like those ones that are potentially sooner with the ice sheets, if you have the, um, changes in the circulation patterns, you know, that might push the Amazon towards tipping more. So it might not be that mm-hmm. end of the century I was talking about. It might be a lot sooner. So, mm. you know, um, we had a really, um, I had like this interesting conversation with people at our tipping point conference and how do you convey the message of an early warning signal yeah. and saying, you know, like, you know, if we said to the Amazon, if we actually worked out like, well, the tipping point's going to be in 50 years and... You know, if you tell policymakers that, they'll go, oh, I'll be retired by then or dead or something. Um, But it's like, but no, the things you actually do today are going to affect that future 50 years. And so, you know, how 
how do you get that point across that you know and that goes for climate in general as well you know if mm. you tell someone at 2100 the temperature's going to be like this i mean i've seen climate models go out to like 2500 and they say mm. this is like what the world would look like in 2500 and you know <laughs> generally we don't care about that far ahead right. but so right. you know I, but perhaps if you know we are at that point in time where we might you know start to see the actual and big changes that are happening in our lifetime and you know <laughs> i heard something from a comedian the other day saying that you know they were supposed to be at that perfect point in life where um you know their parents had messed up the climate and right. their children were going to be the ones to have to deal with that but it turns mm -hmm. out perhaps we're going to be the ones that have to deal with it because it's a lot sooner than we thought so mm -hmm. you know <laughs> so it is you know it is on us now and it's not you know trying to pass the buck to the people afterwards <laughs> yeah well, and, it and i mean it shouldn't be anyway you know we no. should be trying to do something but yeah no but you know what also comes to mind is uh, like you said you know 50 years from now people can't even think about that and i think that's why you see I don't know if you've noticed so many companies, so many governments are saying net zero by like 2040 or 2050. Mm -hmm. Like so much of that to me is, uh, is kind of past the buck, right? Like nobody, a lot of, I don't know if a lot of these companies or a lot of these governments really have, I'm not saying I'm not, I'm, I'm being very general here, yeah, yeah, but it's sure. an easy thing to say, Hey, by 2040 or 50, we'll be net zero. It's not something <laughs> yeah. you have to think about right now. Right? Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. When should we start working on this? Yeah. 2035. Yes. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, we'll have enough time, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a bit sad. Um, you folks are also looking at something called positive tipping points, we which are. I hadn't, which I hadn't heard about oh, cool. um, until until I started uh, looking at the work that you folks are doing. So, tell folks about what the heck a positive tipping <laughs> point is. <laughs> so, you know, we're getting to a point where, you know, we're seeing people actually really interested in the climate and you see climate rallies and things happening in the mm -hmm. world mm -hmm. and so you know, there's this concept that i mean tim lenton has kind of led on this at exeter but mm -hmm. this idea of positive tipping points where you know you can change things in society to make people behave in a more energy conscious way perhaps mm. and so a really good example of this is um like electric vehicles for example mm -hmm. so you know there's a whole structure about um you know infrastructure and the price of batteries and things but you know you can kind of especially in norway you can kind of follow this through and you get to a point where mm. the actual price of electric vehicles is kind of on par with um you know like petrol vehicles and suddenly yeah. you know everyone's like well i'll go electric then so you can imagine that as a tipping point because you know you're getting to that point you've been pushing the prices of electric vehicles down to a certain point where um someone goes yeah i'm gonna buy one and you know then everybody buys them and you get a tipping point but in a positive way and so um yeah us at extra at the moment are trying to so we started to call them early warning signals but i think we're now calling them early opportunity signals mm. <laughs> so okay. it's the idea that yeah. you use kind of the same methods this idea that you know perhaps your state is that people aren't energy conscious very basically or mm. environmentally conscious and you can degrade that state by making certain changes to you know 
let's make electric vehicles cheaper or whatever and that should mm-hmm. you know eventually tip people into deciding that they want to be on the other side of the fence and buy them and so you know we've got um you know we're looking at lots of interesting data at the moment not just like climate data but you know data from what people are talking about on twitter and mm-hmm. um car sales um one of our phd students in the group is interested in like the movement towards like meat-free diets and whether that can be a positive tipping point so you know it's all things like that and so you know we're looking for the same kind of signals um so from my point of view i have this crazy idea that socially you should be able to see the same signals because like a perturbation in a system like that might be that you know like um um you know like a new electric vehicles come out or something and so Mm -hmm. lots of people talk about that and then you know the the attention from that dies away and you get back to a baseline attention and then in you know a couple months time if another electric vehicle comes out and people are really interested in that one then the you know the mentions of the topics of that or how people are talking that'll take longer to return back and it's mm-hmm. exactly the same way as like the drought in the Amazon with the trees recovering. So mm. it's a concept that definitely needs a lot more theory behind it. But, you know, naively, I can imagine that, you know, um, you know, the climate itself and whether people are interested in positive action, they should talk about climate things that have happened for longer online if they're interested about them, you know, and that topic yeah. of conversation will last longer and take longer to die off. So, you know, it's that concept of, try and do you know detect that that's happening and then thinking like well what can we do about this you know if people are thinking about this then you know perhaps this should happen just to you know tip them to be more conscious and stuff so yeah i I would i would imagine that um there's a bit of an exploratory exercise going on as far as trying to figure out what those you know what those systems are like you're looking Definitely. at the electric vehicle yeah. stream uh-huh. right but is that is that the right one to focus on as far as the thing that would cause the tipping point and exactly. obviously there's going to be multiple factors growth yeah. and renewable energy might be another stream that you're looking at but yeah. um compared to climate systems which are probably you know a little bit more defined mm-hmm. i imagine these kind of factors you know will, some of these streams might die off and they might not even make a difference at all right exactly. um yeah, and yeah. some of them might emerge or you know so yeah and that's a concept that's like you know been talked about for a while but not from a positive tipping point of view but it, mm-hmm. you know like there's been research into you know the uptake of vehicles to start with and it's like you know do they f- do they fill niches that people need and so you know like there was a certain uptake of cars for people i don't know who like needed them for business or something but you mm-hmm. know then certain cars came out that let people like travel for pleasure and things and you know it's filling those niches and things and so you know we've we're on a project now for the next year or so and it's trying to work out how to quantify these things and measure them and see if you can you know inter you know see these interactions and you know put things in place to try and help the climate at the same time so are you also do you know if the if your group is also looking at um just how perceptions change uh, from people after they experience, you know, disasters and such. And just anecdotally, for instance, like Um. in Atlanta, Canada, (laughs) there have been some recent uh, um, hurricanes and, and, you know, people getting interviewed on the news saying 
before there were a lot of people who didn't really understand climate change, but I'll tell you now people do get it and they understand the importance of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to me that probably has a, a huge impact, but are you folks looking at that sort of thing too? Yeah. Well, not necessarily, but, um, yeah, it's like, um, you know, depending on the type of data you get, I can kind of imagine that the things I was talking about, about, you know, how people talk about things, you know, online, for example, you know, Mm -hmm. that might that's the sort of thing you might be able to detect so you know mm -hmm. um, I can imagine that fitting in the same framework but it's not necessarily something that we're looking at at the moment so yeah yeah very interesting positive tipping points yeah I think that's definitely not something that uh, I think people are very familiar with so really yeah, cool that you folks are looking at that uh, yeah I guess from our point of view you know there's all like this doom and gloom looking for tipping points in the climate and I feel weird doing it a lot because you know as a researcher, if you find a result, it's a good thing, but then it means bad things for people. So, you know, it's quite <laughs> yeah. a balance. So the whole positive yeah. tipping thing is quite good in a way, because if you do find something, you can be happy about it, like on both ways. So, <laughs> Well, when I first when I first heard, I'm like, oh, is this just a, another way of like communicating this? Right. But it's more than that. Right. Like you folks are actually like I think there's a good science that can really emerge from that. Right. In that, you know, if you really understand when that uh, adoption is going to happen for electric vehicles and the actual impact that'll have on, um, you know, not only reducing emissions, but what that means for the broader climate system or, mm -hmm. or other, like there are broader implications for this, but yes, I mean, it's a nice way of communicating this, but it's, yeah, it's yeah. beyond that. It goes beyond that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just really complicated as well. Cause you need to think like even locally for like electric vehicles, you know, mm -hmm. it's the infrastructure there for people to be able to use them and, Sure. You know, <laughs> you asked about Exeter earlier, and perhaps, you know, maybe Exeter is getting there, but I can imagine where I live, which is slightly away from Exeter, you know. I can't imagine getting round too well with an electric vehicle, for example, because, you mm. know, there's no charging points or anything. So, you know, really? I think, yeah, there's probably some. I've just never noticed yeah. them. But, okay. you know, I got, I got told that my local council had like a drive to try and work out electric vehicle stuff. I, but it was a few years after they did it and I never noticed a change. So I'm not mm. sure how well that went, but <laughs> interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, like, I feel like there's even with this current federal government that you have in, in the UK, there still seems to be, um, an interest on addressing climate. So I would have thought there'd be more advancements on something like EV charging infrastructure in the UK, or at least, yeah. I don't know, maybe it's other parts of the UK, just maybe Probably. you're not seeing it. In your Probably. Exeter, yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can yeah. imagine in cities, but yeah, some, some ways out where I am, it might be a bit different, but yeah. Um, you are also looking at actually before i ask you go into your other this other new research that you're getting into um maybe just to end off on the amazon piece and and the work that you folks are doing on, on understanding climate systems and tipping points what gives you or what gives you folks and your group hope i guess um yeah i guess personally for me like i've been working on <coughs> climate things for maybe like 12 years as an actual researcher mm -hmm. after my PhD and you know when I used to you know promote my papers for example you know like mm -hmm. a reporter <laughs> a researcher also promotes their papers up online and you know the kind of feedback you get from those sort of things it used to get picked up by like climate deniers and they'd shout quite a lot about you know oh you know climate alarmism and 
You know, I had a paper oh. once where I'd shown that you could look for these early warning signals of the AMOC collapse in a model, and they picked it up and basically said that we were like, um, you know, pressing the button for the alarm because, you know, the world was going to end apparently. And it was like, no, it was just in a model. And, you know, it doesn't doesn't mean anything. It's just showing that the method works. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, now, like this paper that came out last year on the Amazon, you know, I haven't really seen any of that. I've just seen a lot of people perhaps going the other way too much and, you know, almost like climate doomism, which, mm -hmm. you know, isn't necessarily a good thing, but, you know, it means people are interested and they're bothered about the topic and, mm -hmm. you know, perhaps had to dial it back a bit and say, like I said to you earlier, no, you know, this is an early warning signal of it happening, mm -hmm. but it really shows over that time that people are interested in these topics and, you know, they're, they're really bothered about doing something about it. And that's not something that I noticed like 15 years ago or so. So whether the algorithms have changed and they're only showing me the nice things, but, you know, in, my, <laughs> in at least my echo chamber, if that's happening, then, you yeah. know, I can see that a change in people's personalities and, you know, they are, um, you know, they're coming out on top rather than all the denierism that's was there before. So, yeah, I think, yeah. I think the people socially are starting to see that they can make these changes and you know you see all these climate rallies and things happening across the world and you know i think we're in a much better place socially than we were 15 years ago to do something about it so oh well, i think about the, the i imagine what's sort of driving that interest on your paper on the amazon is the politics are so hot there right now yeah, right yeah, this, yeah. it's just it's uh people are seeing what's happening there was a whole Remember uh, a couple, few years ago, there was a huge wildfire in the Amazon and there was so much attention being to the Amazon mm -hmm. burning down. And then I remember seeing like, um, what was it that there was a cathedral or a church that uh, burned down in in France or something like that. And oh, then, not Sudan. And then people, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 that's it. Sorry. Thank you. Uh, and, and obviously that's it. You know, that has a lot of historical and social and cultural relevance, but they're like, we're talking about that, but the Amazon is burning down. It's yeah, just, yeah. you know, just interesting where people's attentions lie. But I imagine that that probably had to had to do something mm. with so much of that interest, right? Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah very interesting. Okay, so you're also focused on COVID resilience in, in oh. resiliency in countries. Tell yeah, folks about that work. <laughs> so this was this was again. I have to give Tim Lenton the um props for coming up for the idea but you know mm -hmm. we worked on it together but there's this idea that again you know you can have a system and you perturb it in some way and see how long it takes to return mm -hmm. back to normal um you know a lot of these things you have um <clears throat> when you do this you know i said about the droughts in the amazon but you know they're different droughts so you know you could have a stronger drought or a weaker drought and COVID gives you a really nice thing to at least measure <laughs> because, you know, COVID, you know, and naively would be the same everywhere. If some if a country gets COVID, it's got COVID, you know, it doesn't get mm. a worse COVID or a right. weaker COVID. Right. What determines if it's stronger or weaker is how the country set up to deal with that mm. COVID spike. So in much the same way that you know, we measure the resilience of a system by seeing how long it takes to get back to normality. You can kind of do a similar thing with each country's data on like their COVID spikes and see how long it takes to get mm -hmm. that under control. 
And so we had all these, probably about 180 countries, I think we managed to get decent data on how they've dealt with COVID when it happened in 2020. And mm-hmm. so, you know, alongside that, we managed to get lots of data about, um, you know, societal things. So there's something called the World Value Survey where they ask people what their views are on certain things. And we picked mm-hmm. out certain questions from that such as how much do they trust um their fellow um citizens or how much do they mm-hmm. trust their government um <coughs> we also got things about you know how stringent their lockdown rules were and you know because mm-hmm. someone had quantified those and we basically did this big like analysis of trying to link things together and really strongly it comes up with this idea that how resilient a country is to covid like how easy it is to get their spike under control and back to normal mm-hmm. is really strongly linked to how much trust is in that country. Um, mm. And colloquially, you can imagine that that makes sense. Um, there's this idea of like a social contract that you have with your government where, you know, you give up certain freedoms um, and, um, you know, and in return you get some kind of safety from them, for example. So, yeah. you know, I can't go out and lob bricks everywhere through people's windows or something, you know. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I mean, our country's ridiculous, but, you know, you can kind of get the idea that in a more trusting society, you're going to trust your fellow um, country people that, you know, they're going to follow the rules. And, you know, mm. if everybody sticks behind something that the government has said, then, you know, you get that under control a lot quicker. Um, I mean, in our country, you couldn't even trust our own government with their own <laughs> lockdown rules. But, right. you know, <laughs> if you look at countries generally, you can see a really nice relationship that this, like, back to normality happens a lot in faster in countries that trusted each other more. So... Um, so this is trust with like the govern the government and governing institutions, or even trust. They like, just mentioned trust with people as well. Yeah. So, so this so this specific question that came up that people answered was just trust in general, but it is talking about you know whether they trust um, each other and whether they trust their government. Just it was just like a whole general question basically, okay. but it's it's okay. asking like that sort of thing, just generally. So this specific you know this world value survey didn't come out just because of covid it's something that's totally mm. unrelated to it so mm. you know in those countries where um i guess like new zealand for example where there's probably a lot more trust in their government and their fellow people mm. you know they all followed their rules they they you know got everything under control really quickly whereas um i can't remember exactly who was quite bad maybe russia i want to say was quite bad mm. And they also had low trust, so, <laughs> you know... Mm, you, makes sense, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, they took absolutely ages to recover from their spike because, mm. you know... Um, but, you know, obviously the ones in the middle also matched it, so, you know, I'm just picking ones out that I remember. So that. which which countries, um, just really curious, like, what are some countries, at least in New Zealand, stood out as a country that had sort of high trust? What were some of the other countries that you noticed? <laughs> um, I feel like weirdly israel got it down quite quickly but i think that might have been like a vaccine thing as well but i, I can't oh, remember they were exactly very what... aggressive on the vaccine thing yeah. Yeah, yeah but i can't remember if they also trust each other quite well as well like at least mm. according to the world value survey but mm. yeah i mean we've got to remember having 180 countries and actually 
in the paper having plotted out 180 plots and just seeing all these time series mm. and you kind of go yeah. a bit blind yeah, yeah, but yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah fair enough <laughs> so what would you say is what's the key takeaway from that research <laughs> that you um, want people to have yeah so i guess so also like something we called adaptive stringency which was a measure of how stringent a country was before compared to mm -hmm. what they decided to move it up um so we found a combination between you know getting adaptive stringency high and also you know being trusting they were the most important things for getting this you know covid under control and so yeah you know perhaps governments could look at this and actually try and be more trusting and oh no more outwardly trusting face or mm -hmm. outwardly facing trusting so you know <laughs> i mean we really haven't done that in this country very well i think we've probably gone backwards with the trust according to covid mm -hmm. thing so i mean i mean i've seen global news about you know what our government did during lockdown i'm sure mm. it's got to mm -hmm. you guys as well but you know that's mm -hmm. the wrong way to go about things and mm. i can imagine if those value surveys came out now our trust would be a lot lower and if we had another lockdown because of some other pandemic that happened, nobody's going to do anything about it and mm -hmm. we'll just all ignore yeah. it and, you know, yeah. it's not going to get it down. So, I mean, <laughs> it's, so it's a cool concept. It kind of matches in with this kind of resilience work and, you know, mm -hmm. returning back to equilibrium. And, you know, if the government wanted to take something away from it, it's just to actually be more trusting and do what you're going to say. And it turns out you'll save your your population as well so mm. you know it's got a benefit of being nice and being good for people so i i don't know what, what the feelings were like in the uk but i imagine this is probably uh, i'm going to generalize big time here but um that i feel like in the first few months of covid that there was a lot of like maybe goodwill and trust shown by the public towards you know governing institutions and, mm -hmm. and the people who were you know the public health experts because there was so much unknown and people were willing to like okay i'll hunker down this i don't know anything about this right and then you know i want to say by may june of 2020 <laughs> all that goodwill was kind of up the window for a lot of people and yeah. you started to see the backlash but there was something there within those first couple of months that i think people were like okay i gotta i gotta listen to what the government is saying here you know but yeah yeah and um yeah, I guess in our country it helped that they did this whole furlough scheme where they stopped people going to work, but also paid them like 80% mm -hmm. of their yeah. wage for not yeah. working. Yeah. So people are quite happy with that. Um, yeah. Unless you were one of the people who had to carry on working. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but, you know, those schemes started to end and then people were like, well, hang mm -hmm. on a minute, I can't, you know, I can't go back to work and, mm -hmm. you know... Um, I, you know, I need money and, you know, that's yeah. when it also starts to break down, I think. And, yeah. you know, I guess, yeah, it's probably like a short sightedness of how long things are actually going to last. And mm -hmm. so, you know, like you said at the start, when people are happy, you know, a couple of months, perhaps, you know, you could live with that. But when it starts moving into a few more months and um, we had a really funny thing where we had different tiers of lockdown, like one, two and three. And like, oh, the, okay. So the best tier was, you know, there's no lockdown rules at yeah. all. Yeah. And people were, <laughs> you know, people were like, oh, am I going to be in that tier? Like when it got mm. announced tonight. And there was like one little island just off that was <laughs> like in 
this top tier where like yeah. 10 people live and you know the rest of the country was just in lockdown and then there was a few countries that were or a few like counties where it's like you're not allowed to leave your house at all so you know everyone yeah. thought they were going to be in the good one and you know everyone was in the bad one except for 10 people so yeah um yeah you know when you do things like that that doesn't help trust either i don't think so no for sure for sure <laughs> um before we get into the final two questions if that's okay with you just again real key takeaway from the work the amazon paper that you did what would you want people to take away from that work yeah so i think yeah to reiterate what i said earlier like the work that we did showed that there was an this was an early warning of approaching a tipping point in the amazon and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's too late to stop that so you know any actions that we take now in a positive way towards the amazon are going to benefit that and i do feel that like if we start to do that soon then you're going to start to gain this resilience that i've been talking about back into the amazon and that could in turn you know help us in our fight towards um fixing like global climate change so yeah i would say you know less of the climate doomism and more of the climate action on that point of view because it's not too late for it so wonderful uh chris are you okay for us to go into the final two questions yeah, that i asked yeah. sure all right so our first question is um our five for dinner question dead or alive who are five people that you'd want to have supper <laughs> or, or have dinner with sure so i mean i've never been asked five which is crazy so mm. <laughs> it's usually like three so um mm. yeah i guess yeah i'd start with um like jim lovelock a scientist from the uk okay. who you know he's he was my supervisor, supervisor, supervisor. <laughs> so he, I mean, I don't know if you know oh, a lot gee. about it. So yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, like from, you know, academic great-grandfather, I guess you could mm -hmm. say. But, mm -hmm. you know, there's, a, um, <laughs> you know, he um, he passed away last year. He was mm -hmm. a really close friend to my supervisor, old Tim. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, he, you know, he's just like this scientist that, you know, um, he had this centenary, um, you know, he was 100 years a few years ago. And, you know, when you learn about all the, you know, like the cool stuff he did and, you know, these concepts yeah. that he came up with, you know, they're just so varied and stuff. I think, you know, that would be a really cool conversation. And, you know, I've seen some of that, like, I've seen Tim talk to him a lot and, you know, I've seen interviews from him and, you know, I think. But you haven't met him yet. Yeah, you hadn't met him, sorry. Met him from a distance, but yeah, not okay. him. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was a big, we had a big conference at the university for him. So yeah, he was mm. quite far away, but yeah, that mm. would be cool. Um, and what, what was the, what was the main focus of, if you could in 20 seconds or less, what would the main focus of his research, would you say? Yeah, I guess like the, um, you know, like this concept of Gaia and things and the earth, you know, um, how, you know, it's like a self-regulating system. It's, mm. You know, we're quite big on it in um, geography in Exeter. I mean, I missed it from a maths point of view because I went up on the other side of mm. academia. But, you know, this, this idea that, you know, the earth self-regulates itself and, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you can look through past records and, you know, and it's a way of thinking about how the earth interacts with us. And, you know, I think we were trying to push Gaia 2.0 at some point by, you know, having our specific interactions interact with the Earth and, you know, particularly from a climate change point of view. So, you know, setting up those kind of concepts, I think. Um, but, you know, he was like an engineer as well. And, you know, he's got lots of fun engineering stories and things. So, mm. yeah, quite a dabbler, I think. But, 
yeah <laughs> very cool number two who was that who would that be <laughs> um yeah i guess i'll go with sir david attenborough maybe mm-hmm. because you know I, I guess he's popular over there as well mm-hmm. but um mm-hmm. you know i so when i was in maths you know before doing all the climate stuff um we did have a few like modules on climate and mm. um one of our lecturers was quite proud that he was on one of um david attenborough's um like programs talking about climate change and you know you start to learn that he is someone who's a really strong advocate for um you know trying to fix the climate problem but he's you know he's also got that um you know that platform to you know try and inspire that change so i think that's quite cool as well so plus he's probably got some really cool stories so (laughs) he's uh isn't he like 96 or something at this point yeah yeah he's 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 getting up there yeah it's crazy yeah still doing the stuff though so (laughs) amazing yeah he's just i think the when that time comes it's definitely somebody the world's gonna miss for sure so his voice you know oh yeah 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 number three who would that be uh, this is, <laughs> so I might be moving slightly more into my hobbies now. So you know, yeah. I, <laughs> so you might it's tell your five from, man. That's cool. So um, yeah, I'm a huge comic book geek. So okay, uh, it would have to be like Stan Lee, who you know pretty much did all the, like the Marvel superheroes from like the sixties. Mm. So you know, he passed away a few years ago, but you know, he's been at like you know conventions and there's the chances to meet him and stuff. And I never got to do that, but I think that would mm. be really cool and. You know, he's like, I mean, I have like two Spider-Man tattoos, for example, and stuff like that. So, <laughs> um, you know, having been able to talk to one of the creators of that, I think would be really good as well. So, yeah. Are you a collector as well of comic books? Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I've got thousands downstairs. Oh. Well, I'm just about to move in a few months time Um in with my girlfriend they were just getting mm. a house together and mm. she's extremely worried about where all the comics are gonna go so that'll be i bet yeah be a fun conversation when we get to it but i'm kind of do you are you very it. protective of your comic books in the sense of like just like do you have any special ones that you just make sure are like in yeah. mint condition or... uh, yeah yeah so i mean you can get them like slabs now you know like they grade them and put them in like you know a case so there's companies that do that so okay yeah i've got quite a few i've got like ones that have been signed and you know so yeah i'm a bit of a nerd i'm afraid (laughs) Mm. very cool the spider-man tattoo my my daughter right now is so into i mean for kids they have spidey and and, uh-huh. and and uh you know there's like the ghost spider and spin she's all into that right now that's yeah. all we play these days she's almost five and we're just role-playing spidey and his amazing friends like that's, that's all day got, every day so I, I know what you're talking about so that's okay that's, i don't know if that's good or bad but i know what you're talking about so I don't know. She sometimes gets really into it. She really believes that she's like yeah. Ghost Spider or something. And I just have to, yeah, she's you a, got me and tied me on the up. right track. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that, it's going to lead to electric comic books as well, but uh, yeah, man, thousands. That's uh, you're, you're definitely into it then for but, sure. Yeah. I'm afraid so. Yeah. Make, if yeah. she gets into it, make sure you've got the space. So yeah, that's all. Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Good advice. Who else you got? Uh, um, sorry, I forget the first person. What was his oh, the professor's name? Okay. Uh, and then you have David Attenborough, and then you had um, the creator of the Marvel comics. Yeah, Stanley. Yeah. Stanley. Um, okay. Yeah, so I'm also quite a big football fan or 
soccer mm-hmm. fan, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, you know, I grew up in the... I, did you stick your tongue out when you I, had to say I that right there? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I saw that. That's okay. Um, so, I mean, apparently we invented the term soccer, so, you know, I can't complain. Oh, really? But, I didn't yeah, know Yeah, but it comes from... Yeah. Um, I can't remember exactly. It's to do with the... Because it's association football, so the association bit of the soccer comes from that. So, apparently it's our mm. fault that it's called soccer, but, you know, I... I've just like um, pretend it isn't really. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, growing up in the nineties, I guess um, I was a big Man U fan for Manchester United. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, definitely their manager at the time would be there, Sir Alex Ferguson. He, mm. you know, he's definitely got some really interesting stories from the dressing sure. room. You know, I'm pretty sure that there was like some boots flying when he was angry and stuff. <laughs> so you know, um, you know, he's still around. He still watches the games and stuff. And I, I'd like to be hopeful this season, perhaps, but, you know, we haven't really hit the heights that we have since he retired, but, you know, he's definitely mm. got some fun stories. So. so you're still a strong man, you fan, then? I am, yeah, yeah, I'm afraid, yeah. yeah. I also yeah. support my local team, but we are, like, four, yeah, four leagues below and not doing very well okay. at the moment, so, you know, okay. it's nice to have a bit of success yeah, in supporting yeah. as well. During Ferguson's time, like, they, they were fairly successful, hey? Yeah, yeah, very successful, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, it's yeah, it's changed a bit, but I'm hoping this season we're starting to come back a bit. So yeah, um, the whole term about football. I mean, it's interesting. Like we have um, the MLS here is kind of taken off a little bit, but even though it's called Major League Soccer, all a lot of the teams still call themselves like, um, you know, for example, um, Toronto has a club here, and they'll say TFC, which is yeah. Toronto Football <laughs> Club, right? Like so, we still use the term football, even yeah. though. Yeah, so I think it's uh, I think people understand that a lot more as yeah. compared to soccer. So I mean, I'm a big NFL fan as well. So mm. you know, the football point of view from that, you know, I have to say American football. And yes, so. sure, yeah, 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 <laughs> for sure. All right, and so and then last one, who would be um, your fifth? Yeah, I guess like personally, that would probably be my mum. I guess she passed yeah. away about four years ago. So okay, um, you know, the world has really changed a lot in that time. Mm. You know, we've had like. You know, like, well, I don't even know if Brexit's happened here, really. But, you know, we've had that happening. You know, we've mm-hmm. had COVID. We've had, mm-hmm. you know, like the Russian-Ukraine war. Um, mm. And, you know, like from a personal point of view as well, I've like, you know, had the success of this paper. And, you know, I'm finally mm. moving house as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think that would be a really cool conversation as well. You know, if people generally say that sort of thing. So, <laughs> How did she feel about your comic books? Um... Less angry than my dad, I think. (laughs) 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 Um, Thanks for sharing that last one. I appreciate that. Um, That's a a very cool five. Um, Last question. uh, Besides the circle of life, what do you know for sure? All right. So I guess this is going to sound kind of advice driven by me. But, you know, I've I've learned that. You know, for a PhD and like these early career researchers, you know, you really, you know, a lot of them I know like work all the hours they can and, you know, they'll still be in the office at like, you Mm -hmm. know, 10 at night, um, maybe not even leave. But and, you know, hopefully this carries through in life in general that you don't necessarily have to do that. You just have to be productive with your time. And if you, you know, if you kind of structure your day properly, you know, you become a lot more effective. And I think, you know, all these people who try and struggle and work all they can, you know, 
I, some of the most successful people I know will just work a nine till five and, you know, once mm -hmm. they're out the door, that's it. And they don't care about what happens until they get into work the next day. And, you know, I think that's mm. a really important way to live. Um, and so, yeah, I think what I know for sure is that just because you work close, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to see that any success. So sure. Yeah, that's, that's really, I, I, I briefly was, uh, in academia and I remember seeing so many of my colleagues working really late and, and grinding through and it's such yep. a competitive cutthroat place sometimes right like of having to especially if you want to be a researcher want to mm -hmm. be a professor like it's all about publishing and those in those early days right mm -hmm. doing your postdoc it's all about publishing your papers and yeah, yeah. and building up that cv and all that sort of thing so i can understand probably why people put in all that time but it's yeah. it's very wise what you're saying too yeah yeah i think you become more productive if you have that schedule and you make sure that you don't yeah you know if you burn yourself out then you're just going to be worse and you know, having that balance is very important, I think. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Chris, man, I really appreciate the conversation. I, I learned a lot, uh, about the work that you're doing in, in the Climate Systems Institute and, and learning about positive tipping points and even this new work on resiliency in COVID. So thanks for making uh, time for me today. And, um, hopefully you enjoyed yourself as much oh, yeah, as I definitely. enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for reaching out. Like I say, it's really nice to be able to talk to people in like different mediums. So, you know, you quite often get like academic talks that you have to do and, you know, that can be quite boring. And, but, you know, <laughs> I'm definitely seeing a lot more public stuff recently, which is fun because you get to engage people who are interested rather than, you know, having to be there for academic purposes. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, look forward to um, seeing more of your work in, in the future. And cool. uh, thanks again for your time today. Yeah. Cheers. Thank you. All right. Take care. Oh, yeah. Indeed. Thank you. Bye. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. And, uh, we'll see you in a future episode. Bye.